Welcome to the Cell Culture Dish Podcast, automated stem cell-based high-throughput drug screening for ALS and Parkinson's disease. I'm Brandy Sargent, editor of the Cell Culture Dish, and joining me today is Dr. Jan Bruder. Dr. Jan Bruder is a postdoc at the Max Planck Institute. His focus is on iPS-based compound screening in human neurodegenerative disease models. He has worked in stem cell automation and has a background in artificial organs during his work in the ABC, Artificial Organs, Biomaterials, and Cell Science program, including cell material interactions, tissue engineering, and medical devices. Dr. Bruder earned his PhD in biology at Brown University. Can you give us a bit of background on the type of work and diseases that you're studying in your department? Sure. We're actually not a disease modeling institute, but our institute looks at the uh, basic biology of how tissues form uh, and how they function. Our institute is separated into three different departments. Uh, the first department headed by Professor Adams is headed uh, is a department for blood vessel formation, and they look into how growing organisms and tissues generate their blood vessels. The second department is headed by Professor Festweber, and he looks at how inflammatory cues work together in recruiting and regulating immune responses. And lastly, in my department, which is headed by Professor Schuller, we're looking into different aspects of pluripotency. Basically, what we're asking is how is it triggered and how is it maintained? And we're also trying to understand the underlying mechanisms of that, that render cells pluripotent. And uh, the important part for disease modeling is that we also look into how we direct pluripotent cells to become different uh, cell types in, in a number of different organ systems. And that includes uh, the germline, the heart, and the nervous system. And so the basic thrust of the institute is the basic science underlying these developments, but the uh, disease modeling actually is an offshoot of this. And I was uh, really fortunate to be a member of a group that has been able to model both Parkinson's disease and ALS in vitro in human cell systems, and then to actually push it to the next level uh, to where we can do high-throughput screenable automated setups uh, using these disease models. You mentioned the importance of using disease modeling in the drug discovery process, and, and I was hoping you could explain why this is important and how this system compares to other models, for instance, animal models. So the, uh, the big issue, in, especially in neurodegenerative disease modeling, is cell sourcing. Um, we can really approach patients and ask for biopsies of their brains. You understand if I say the list of volunteers is quite short. So one of the problems with neurodegenerative disease, and I want to talk about uh, Parkinson's to start off, is that uh, by the time the symptoms are diagnosed, a lot of the damage has already, been, has already happened. And so uh, what happens in Parkinson's is that um, dopaminergic neurons in the substantia nigra start to die off. These are at the center, at, at the bottom of your, your brain, sort of at the, same, at, at the height of your eye. And uh, what typically manifests itself first is that people start having a tremor. And uh, depending on which reports you read, 80% of those dopaminergic neurons have already disappeared by the time people start noticing anything is wrong. So this makes it really difficult to study the underlying disease mechanisms because the, the cells that are most interesting to us, where the disease starts, are already gone by the time we start uh, becoming aware that there is a problem. And the second issue is that neurons uh, are post-mitotic. 
And so even if we are able to get our hands on one of those precious uh, Parkinson biopsies, we can't expand these cells in culture. Um, they can never form the basis for systematic experiments uh, or even screens because we just don't have enough material to do anything of significance. And so people have resorted uh, to use animal models to circumvent this entire sourcing issue. And there's been a lot of great research that has been done over the last couple of years um, and decades. But as science progresses, it, it, it's becoming increasingly clear that animal cells, um, particularly neural systems, don't really mirror the physiology and biochemistry that we have in the human tissue. And I want to give you two examples to illustrate this. Any, any kind of novel drug that we develop goes through extensive testing, both in vitro and in, in vivo. And uh, this takes anywhere from six to 10 years. And uh, only then do they reach clinical phase one where they first encounter humans. And again, depending on which uh, um, source of, of data you get, 50% of these drug candidates that have been vetted for such a long time, including animal trials, actually drop out in, uh, in clinical phase one. And they drop out because they either don't work or because they're toxic. And an example for that is, and this is a well-worn example, is thalidomide, which had been extensively tested in, in rodents and then um, was perfectly safe in rodents and turned out to um, cause terrible, terrible malformations in, in newborn infants if, if the drug was given during a critical time period in, in pregnant women. And um, a more recent example is uh, some of the goings on at BioTrial in France uh, last year. Uh, there, they had a clinical phase one trial that looked at um, judging a neuroactive drug in a very small group of people. Turns out uh, when they delivered that drug, two people died and nine were severely injured. <clears throat> and this was, this is, these are two examples of the unfortunate surprises that can happen when uh, you test drugs in animal systems and the biochemistry and physiology is different in, in people. You've touched on one of my favorite topics, which is using um, stem cells to model diseases, because I feel, you know, all the issues that you mentioned with animal models, and uh, I really just, the more that you look into it, the more that it's apparent that animal models just are not a great system, um, especially for the more complex drugs that we're developing now. Um, and just the statistics that you talked about, we, we, I've seen the same kinds of statistics in the industry about the number of drugs that drop, drop out because of toxicity issues once they get into clinical trials because the, you know, the animal data is not consistent with what they're seeing in humans. And um, so I think it's just such an exciting area to be able to use stem cells as a, as a way to model disease. It, it's, an, it's a really exciting topic for me personally. I really, I really like it. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, the IPS approach really helps us to circumvent that entire cell sourcing issue. Um, because what we can do now is we take a skin biopsy of a patient that has, for example, uh, some sort of mutation for Parkinson's, and the patient doesn't even have to show the signs of Parkinson's yet. Um, and then we can reprogram these cells to become pluripotent. Uh, we can then freely expand them because these cells are proliferative. I mean, uh, IPS cells are very easy to expand. And um, over the last few years, what we've done in my group is that we've established protocols and we've optimized the protocols uh, to turn them into those dopaminergic neurons that are first affected by the disease. 
And we don't have to retrieve them from the center of the patient's head anymore, but we can generate arbitrary numbers in a Petri dish. And what's more, we can do this right under our eyes and under our microscopes, and we can see the disease develop in the early phases, which we can never do in the brain. And so um, by using human cells and by being able to see these very early on, I think we circumvent a lot of the, the issues that we had before. And so to summarize that, using iPS cells um, really opens up the whole field to ask questions about disease initiation or progression and potential treatment that we just couldn't address before because we didn't have the raw materials. And it's a true turning point in our potential to develop new disease treatment strategies in the lab. Yeah, it's very exciting. And, and I'm very interested in the Parkinson's disease in particular because I have that uh, in my husband's family. And I think these neurodegenerative diseases affect so many different people in terms of they have someone in their family or they know someone. And so this work is just, I think it is so, it touches so many people and so many people are, are interested in it. Could you please explain how you developed an automated system for creating MDA neurons and large compound screens against the disease? Sure. So as I've mentioned before, the first step is um, generating IPS lines from patients that carry some sort of familiar gene mutation um, that predispose them for disease. Um, what I haven't mentioned is that IPS cells are not really suitable as a starting point for automated systems. Uh, IPS cells are sort of cumbersome to hold in culture. They uh, require a lot of expensive growth factors and a lot of manual monitoring that uh, just don't make them really ideal for, for automated setups. It's possible, but it, it's hard to do. Uh, it's expensive. So one of the things that we've been fortunate enough to do is we uh, uh, came up with an intermediate cell type with a neural precursor that is sort of halfway between, developmentally halfway between iPS cells and neurons. Um, what we can do is we can now uh, go from iPS cells, generate these precursor cells, and keep them stably in culture. And we can keep them in culture using only small molecule, molecules. And small molecules are really effective, and they're much cheaper than a lot of the proteins that we use for iPS culture, so that is nice. They also scale very nicely because uh, they double about once a day. Um, and it only takes us four days to go from these cells towards post-mitotic neurons and only two weeks to actually get to uh, dopaminergic neurons. So that makes going through this intermediate cell type makes everything faster uh, and it makes it uh, much more cost-effective, which is really nice. And then to, to go uh, into the setup for the actual screening, so to, to, automate this, to automate this system, what we do is we take these precursors, uh, which are in manual culture at first, and we transfer them to uh, a Beckman Biomech FX, which is our liquid handling station, and we enter them into 384-well assay uh, plates. Um, over the course of two weeks, we add different differentiation factors that we optimized beforehand and uh, for media changes, and we uh, then direct the precursors to develop into dopaminergic neurons. And uh, these neurons uh, carry the same mutation as the patient that volunteered the original skin biopsy. So uh, what we expected is that we see some sort of diseased or sickly neurons, but we are surprised to find that these neurons that we generated actually were perfectly healthy when we started out. And we were sort of taken aback and we're thinking, oh, it didn't work. Um, we have to do this again. Until we realized uh, Parkinson's doesn't hit you until you're 50 or 60 years old. And so Parkinson patients are also born with perfectly healthy neurons. 
So we needed to find a way to uh, artificially age these neurons. And what we came up with is a different regimen, but we ended up settling uh, on something called uh, DTA-NO, which is a nitric oxide donor that uh, mimics the inflammatory immune response that happens in later stage neurodegenerative diseases. And we titrate this compound so that half of the cells in the dish uh, end up surviving. And what this does is it gives us a, a maximum uh, assay window uh, to determine uh, the beneficial or toxic effect of compounds that we add. So if we have half the cells surviving, we have um, some room at the bottom to see if there's toxicity, and we have some room at the top to see if there's any kind of additional survival. And the basic question that we're asking after setting up the system is really simple. We add compounds to these cells, we add the stress to these cells, and then we just ask, is the compound beneficial? Does it increase survival or does it decrease it? And um, to analyze that, what we use is uh, just a deciferase assay, a standard uh, cell titer glow assay from Promega, which we find is both sensitive and robust. And so we run some statistics afterwards to see if we have some hits, and then we'll look at the compounds in more detail. It's really interesting how you can, you know, sort of plan for everything, and then um, it's so it, it's interesting to me that you then grew these cells, and like you said, you were looking for these sickly cells. But then, of course, it makes sense that in the you know in the human body, those cells begin as healthy cells, and then later um, become diseased. And so, it, it it's an interesting adaptation that you needed to make to. A, you know, to address that in your model. Yeah, I think it actually uh, proves our point because uh, what we're trying to do is to roughly recapitulate some of the d disease uh, development. And so if we start with healthy cells, that actually mirrors the situation in vivo. Right. Really interesting. Um, could you touch on a little bit uh, about the advantages of moving the system to automation? Sure. Um, the, there are a lot of advantages of moving this to automation. Um, I think the biggest one is it enabled us to scale up the number of compounds we test. And I'd say the scale up is probably by a factor of 100. Um, at the same time, it reduced costs because we could run everything in smaller wells in a 384 well format. And um, lastly, I think it, um, it reduces the experimental error by standardizing some of the mechanical stresses that are inherent in all sorts of different cell cultures. And um, the one thing that I want to point out is that if you run these kind of experiments in 384 plate, uh, you have to do it in automated fashion. Uh, if you think about something as simple as a, as a media exchange, so normally if you uh, have your cells in a 6-well plate or a 12-well plate, what you do is you take the plate in your hand and you tilt the plate, you insert the pipette into the corner of the plate and you touch or the corner, you remove the liquid and you add fresh, fresh medium. And that's very simple. Um, what you may or may not realize when you're doing this is you, when you touch the pipette to the corner of the, the bottom of the plate, you destroy a little tiny percentage of the, the adherent cell culture in that very spot. And that's not a problem because the six-cell plate is relatively large and you're only damaging a very small area. But if you then scale down the size of the experiments and you run it in a 384 well format, um, suddenly, if you go in with a pipette by hand and you touch the, the ground of your, your well, uh, even with a tiny, tiny pipette tip, you end up destroying at least a quarter of the area, and that will completely invalidate your experiment. So automation really allowed us to 
uh, standardize that and to get around some of those limitations in a smaller format uh, by being able to fine-tune the mechanics of what happens within the wells. And so what we do is we, we go down with a pet tip to about 100 microns above the cell, the cell layer, and we can do this precisely and repeatedly in every well and every plate, and we can remove the medium without ever touching the adherent cells. And that makes our, our data much, much cleaner than we could ever do this by hand. And of course, it's faster and the logistics are much easier to keep track of if you do it on a plate basis. So automation standardizes our culture, it miniaturizes our format, and it helps us save time and cost. Yeah, that makes sense. Ed. And for people out there who are interested in considering a similar uh, automated workflow, what does your automated workflow look like? And can you talk about the equipment you use and also how does that compare to you know, the previous methods you used before that? Sure. So before that, we used to do this in, in a manual format and much bigger wells. So we used to do this in 96 well plates, or we used to do it even in 48 well plates. Um, and this was just basically to get the, pilot, uh, the pilots to work correctly in order to see what differentiation factors we needed to add and to do immunostaining and such things. Um, the way the automated setup works now is actually a, a two-stage approach. We also start in manual culture with uh, generating the uh, precursor cells. And since uh, across the entire screen, the cells start off um, as the same cell type in the same situation, this is actually ideal to generate. We need, I think, about 100, 200 million cells to start a screen. So we do that just in a normal tissue culture hood in, in six well plates. Um, once we have those cells, uh, we move those cells in, into our automated setup, which is a Beckman uh, Coulter FXP uh, biomech liquid handling station. And we feed the cells and uh, basically um, automate every step from there on. Um, what we do is we exchange the cell culture media every day with the liquid handling station or in later stages every two days. And for logistical reasons, we actually subdivide a very large screen into uh, several batches. And so every batch um, has a positive and a negative control plate as well as a, a microclear plate. So since the uh, final readout of the screen is a luciferase readout, we run the screen in white opaque plates, which is great because it boosts the luciferase signal, but it's not great because we can't follow along what the cells are doing as, as they're going through the differentiation. And by having clear plates in each batch, we can see what's going on, and afterwards we can fix the, the plates and also run analyses uh, to make sure that we have the correct types of um, uh, of, of cells in, in, in terms of differentiation. So um, what we do is we, we have those cells in culture. We, we exchange the media for two weeks. Uh, we then, after two weeks, once these have turned into dopaminergic neurons, we add our compound, um, our compound library. We uh, pre-incubate the cells with these compounds for 24 hours to make sure that the uh, different pathways are saturated. And only then do we add our cellular stress. And again, we titrate that stress uh, to make sure that only half of the cells under these given conditions are uh, surviving. Uh, we then let the stress uh, act for two days and then run the cell titer glow analysis uh, to, make to, to see how many uh, different uh, cells have survived under each uh, condition. And I know that obviously when you set up a system like this, it's not going to be perfect from the beginning. Um, so what adjustments, if any, did you need to make to the system to really optimize its performance? That's a great question. Um, it really wasn't perfect from the beginning. <laughs> I mean, 
conceptually, uh, the, the kind of issues you, you're dealing with are very simple. I mean, you're trying to remove liquid or add liquid to different wells. And that's always been really easy. Sometimes I get people that look at me and say, like, okay, so you, you spend a half a year doing this? Like, what was so hard? Turns out... Right. Well, conceptually, lots of things are interesting or, or, or seem uh, easy with cells, but then in, in actual execution, they, they don't turn out right, to be that Right. The devil's in the details. And there was a lot of fine-tuning uh, to get these uh, cell cultures to work in an automated system. The problem is that we, we start with one type of uh, one cell type, which is sort of hardy and acts like an adherent cell line. It's mechanically really robust. And then within two weeks, we turn that into something very beautiful and three-dimensional that is, we turn us into human neurons, which are quite sensitive and delicate, and they require a completely different set of, of mechanical handling. And so um, initially, I optimized the system to be efficient and fast with the adherent cell culture. But as we optimized our differentiation protocols and we started seeing these more intricate and, and beautiful neuronal cultures, uh, those same mechan mechanical parameters ended up destroying the cultures. So I needed to go back and do a lot of trial and error and actually dial down the speed, dial down, uh, increase the, the safety margin in terms of distance to the cell types. Uh, until I got it so that basically the different pipetting um, processes worked for both the starting cell type and the final cell type. And um, with the um, with the great ability now to do all these screens, would you mind talking a little bit about the results you've seen in the biochemical screens? Sure. Um, well, it's not surprising to anyone who does screening that most of the compounds we tested didn't show any activity whatsoever. And... <laughs> Quite a few of the compounds turned out to be uh, highly toxic. Um, about 0.1% uh, of the compounds so, show some beneficial activity. And that means they, they boost cell survival of humans that are carrying a, a Parkinson's disease gene. And uh, the best compounds we've seen so far boost survival up to 87% of the unstressed healthy controls. That is, um, despite being exposed to stress, they're supposed to kill half the cells uh, almost 90% of the cells survive. I think that's really quite remarkable. Very. Yeah, I think um, it, it's interesting to think about the um, importance of automation to that whole process, um, particularly considering issues like hit rate and large sample size. Could you talk a little bit about how important automation was to that? Automation was absolutely essential to do any of this because uh, with the hit rate that is so low, we needed to run many thousands of samples, and we could have never done this by hand. And if we hadn't been able to scale this down to at least the size of a 384 well format, uh, the cost of running a screen in this sort of size and format would have been absolutely prohibitive. Right. Um, and I know that you also uh, were do work on ALS and FTD, and I'd like to switch gears a little bit now and discuss that work, if that's okay with you. I was hoping you'd be able to describe the link between ALS and FTD and how that impacts the research being done for both diseases. So the interesting point is that there's a single mutation that's located in the C9R72 locus that seems to be causative for both ALS and FTD. And the exact mechanisms aren't known yet, but it's exciting, well, not for the patients. If you're diagnosed, then you're suddenly dealing with two different forms of disease. But for, for researchers, it's exciting because that means there's an, a common underlying mechanism 
that we can discover. And by having uh, two different uh, diseases associated with that, the, uh, um, the pool for samples and for uh, different, things, different things we can look at as um, parameters is much larger. And so I think the chances of finding the underlying mechanisms is much better. That makes sense. And you created a human cell-based system to screen compounds relevant to ALS and FTD. Could you describe that system that you created? Sure. It's actually quite similar to the system that I designed for Parkinson's disease. Just uh, this time, we don't differentiate the precursor cells into dopaminergic neurons, but we tweak the conditions. We, we put in some other additives, so we generate motor neurons. And in ALS, uh, motor neurons die first, uh, which then leads to uh, progressive paralysis, and which means the rest of our setup essentially stays the same. We start with precursor cells in an automated system. Uh, we then differentiate these cells into motor neurons over two weeks, add a compound, followed by stress, and then after 48 hours we see uh, which cells with which compound uh, survive the best. And can you describe a little bit of the results of your work on ALS and FTD, and then what are your plans for further research? Mm -hmm. So the, uh, overall, we screened about um, over 50,000 compounds uh, with the C9ORF72 model. And out of these 50,000, we found about 100 compounds that significantly boost cell survival. And what we're trying to do right now is to gather funding and support to have a more detailed look of, of how these compounds work and if they act on the same or related pathways. And then after your experience with both systems, what advice could you give to those who are interested in possibly developing an automated screening process for their disease of interest? I think the best advice I could give them is you have to be patient, and you, you shouldn't start out thinking that automation works right out of the box. Um, biological systems are very sensitive and unpredictable, and you have to do a lot of uh, trial and error until you get the, the settings to work the way you want. I think it's really important to have good support from the manufacturer uh, to troubleshoot both hardware and software issues, and I've been very fortunate in that regard. Um, and you have to dedicate a person, I think, in your lab to, to deal with the transfer of manual culture to automated culture. There are a lot of little things that you learn just by doing, and if you distribute that over several people in a, in a system where it's not established yet, I think that um, you end up wasting a lot of time. So if you have one person who becomes an expert at this, um, then tweaking the settings for different cell types and, and, and experimental systems, I think, becomes much easier. I think that's all really great advice. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we close the interview today? Sure. I wish uh, everyone involved in this exciting field uh, and in this very exciting time good luck. and. And anyone can feel free to contact me with questions or, or comments or maybe just to exchange experiences. Great. Thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Cell Culture Dish podcast. To learn more about this and other stem cell and biomanufacturing related topics, please visit www.cellculturedish.com.